City Church in Over the Rhine is cultivating the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world in the city of Cincinnati. We're glad you're choosing to listen to a sermon from our weekly service. We would love to meet you. Visit us on Instagram or at citychurchotr.com. Enjoy. This week I had lunch with Ben Oliai, who is a member. Someone's not happy I'm preaching. I'm so sorry. You should have been here last week. It wasn't me. I had lunch with Ben this week, who helped us start this church, but also um, is a member of our management team. And he asked me, he said, so is it harder than you thought it would be, the planting of this church? And I was like, oh, yeah, it is. And he said, but is it worth it? And I thought about it longer than I thought I would have to, but I was like, absolutely. And it's because I knew there would be stories, but I didn't know like five years ago who they would be. And to put a face to a story is actually really impactful. I didn't know, I knew there would be testimonies of people walking through the door and finding Jesus or refinding Jesus, but I didn't know the personalities of who they would be. I didn't know the faces or the names. And so guys, there is something really cool and really special happening here. And um, if you're a part of it, like if you're really a part of this thing, there are moments that it is hard. There's moments that doing ministry is really difficult. And if you're really a part of this thing and you're seeing some of the things and you're hearing or maybe you're experiencing, you're also arriving at the same conclusion that I am, which is that it is so worth it. It's so worth it to follow Jesus. Um, this morning, I, uh, it is Palm Sunday. That's what we're going to talk about. But I wanted to reiterate actually something Stephanie was talking about with Easter and um, say that this is, starting today, the next seven days, are the best window of time that you have to potentially invite someone to something spiritual where they would normally say no, but this week they might actually say yes. And so um, I want you to think, who do I want to invite and in which front door do I want to invite them? Because the answer, if the answer is normally no for someone, this is a week in what is still somewhat culturally Christian America, this is the week that they might say yes. And so I really want to challenge you, um, who do you want to invite to Easter service next week? Um, Who do you want to invite to your house group? Because there might be a yes where you normally get a no. And we want to have, we want to be a church that is a culture of invitation. And so what that means is that um, it's your job to invite someone here. It's not your job to make them feel welcomed alone. It is our job. And so if I invite someone from, um, not my workplace, because they have to be here, but someone from my gym or a neighbor, all my coworkers are saved, by the way, so that's pretty cool. Um, but if I invite someone from the community, it is not just my job to make sure they feel welcomed. It is your job. And so for the next few weeks, where I imagine we will have more than your average amount of people that are checking out church or potentially checking out Jesus or rechecking out Jesus, maybe for the first 5, 10, 15 minutes after service for the next few weeks in the family room, I want you to have eyes to see not just your friends, but also to see the people that might look new or might look lost. Uh, Catherine and I, we have been here two years before we started City Church, and so we attended other churches, and I can tell you it's a big deal when someone comes up and says hi to you. It's a big deal when you feel welcomed, and so I want to challenge you there, and um, especially if uh, you're married or single and don't have kids, maybe park a little bit further away next week, maybe carpool um, if you can with another 
friend, family, someone like that, um, because we know that there probably will be more than your average amount of people here. So um, the last thing I'll say about Easter is, um, so next, you know, we were talking about it this week in staff meeting, and I'll pull back the curtain a little bit of what next week's going to be like. Um, First of all, it's going to be authentic to who we are, which means there's not going to be like bounce houses filling the family room or a foam party. There's no Cirque du Soleil. And and I don't know if any churches are doing that, so that's not like a comment on them. Um, We're going to be true to who we are, but there's some extra stuff that we're going to do. And um, and I reminded our staff this on Wednesday, mostly because I needed to remind myself this, that it is all irrelevant if he doesn't come. I mean, what a waste of time if he's not actually here. We should have just gone to brunch. You could listen to me talk for 30 minutes over pancake and coffee. That's more comfortable. If he doesn't come next week, we are wasting our time. If he doesn't come this morning, we're wasting our time. And if he does come and something goes wrong or the message isn't that great or someone's off key, it's still so worth it because he's here. And so knowing that there will be people that might not just be giving church a new shot, but maybe Jesus a new shot next week, let's make sure that he's here because he goes where he's wanted. And so we're going to remind him actually right now that he is wanted here. So all out loud, all at the same time, we're going to pray that Jesus, we want to remind you, you are welcome here. You're welcome here this morning, but you are welcome here next week because if you're not here, we're wasting our time. So I want you to pray all out loud, all at the same time. And this is going to be uncomfortable maybe for some But I want you to pray with the same fervor that you would want someone to pray for you for. Okay, so we're going to pray, Lord, just remind him, Lord, you are welcome here next week. Let's go. Jesus, you are welcome here. Father, we ask that you would be here. God, if you're not here, then it's not worth it. So Jesus, we welcome you to this place. Father, we ask that your presence would be filling this place in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, we need you. Uh, We're going to be in Luke 23. Actually, we're going to mostly be in John 12, but I'm going to start in Luke 23. And uh, this is a fast forward a few days from Palm Sunday. This is Good Friday. Luke 23, we're going to start here. We're going to come back here. And the setting is that Jesus is on trial with the Romans and more so the Pharisees. And he's on trial with a guy named Pontius Pilate. And uh, the crowd is outside of Pilate's palace. And it says the whole crowd, verse 18, the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Now, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! The big idea, the big question this morning is, how did we get here? Because we know five days before this, they were saying, Hosanna. And now the crowd is saying, crucify him. And how do you, and we're going to assume that this crowd is somewhat rational. How does a somewhat rational crowd say to themselves, it's better to have that murderer back in our community than that carpenter that has been doing some healings and some good teachings? How did they get to that place? And the whole idea this morning is we're going to answer that question. So we're going to talk about um, uh, Palm Sunday. But first I want to redefine or define maybe for the first time this idea of repentance And what repentance is, repentance is, in the English, it's just one word, 
in the Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was written, it is two words that are squished together, meta, so meta, like Facebook, but they had it first, meta, which means to change, and noia, which means mind. So repentance, literally in the Greek, is just to change your mind. And the whole idea of Jesus following is that we want to change our hearts to pursue him more, but we can't change our hearts on our own. He has to do that. But what we can do is we can change our mind. If God says this, and I think this, repentance is me coming over there. If God says I should do this, but I'm currently doing this, repentance is me coming over this way. I can change my mind. I can start to agree with what God says. And as I change my mind, as I start to agree with what he says is sin, what he says is wrong, what he says is right, as I change my mind, then we open ourselves up to change our hearts. And there's this idea mostly hijacked by people with bullhorns or sandwich cutout boards, that repentance is this awful thing. It's this really hateful thing. It's got flames all around it. It condemns people to hell. And, and there's pieces that these street preachers take, and it's true, but it's not the whole story. Repentance is not just getting out of the bad, but it's welcoming in the good. My favorite verse on repentance is Acts 3.19. Peter heals a man through the power of the Spirit, and then he starts preaching a sermon, and Peter says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Now that, I feel like I've seen that on a sandwich board. I've seen that with a guy in a bullhorn. And that's true, guys. That's scripture. And repentance is not just this, but it's something else. Next slide. Do that so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So repentance isn't just getting out of the bad, but repentance is refreshing. Repentance is one of the most refreshing things that we can do because it allows the Lord to come in. Now, there's three things that usually happen after repentance, after true repentance. This is how you know the difference between it's repentance or confession or something else. Repentance will always lead to, and this is the one we normally get right, Repentance will lead to godly sorrow. It should hurt you to hurt somebody that you love. We experience that all the time in human relationships. And if sin hurts the heart of God, then when I recognize my sin, when I repent of my sin, it should move me to be sorrowful because I have hurt someone that I love. But then it moves me to something else. It moves me to quick obedience. Repentance is not just sit, sitting there in my sorrow, but it moves me to quick obedience. It should change something about my life. And if it doesn't change anything about my life, then that's where confession is, which confession's not bad. Confession is just saying it. Repentance actually moves me to do something different. And then the third part, which I think is often uh, misunderstood or just missed, is repentance will then always lead me into authentic worship. I should feel more loved by God at the end of repentance. I should not feel more condemned. So repentance starts and it moves me, it moves you to godly sorrow because you've hurt someone you love and then it moves you to obedience. You should change whatever is happening otherwise it's just confession but then we result in authentic worship because we get to celebrate that there is grace and forgiveness in the midst of our sin. That is the gospel that we get to come to him, repent and he forgives us of our sin. It's different than confession because it moves us to something. So we're going to bookmark um, Luke 23. We're going to bookmark this idea of repentance, and then we're going to kind of walk slowly through the, uh, John's gospel, John's account of Palm Sunday. But we're going to start actually in John 12, 1. We're going to primarily be in verses 12 to 14. 
But John 12, 1 says this, Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And we're going to focus on the first part of that verse. The last part's the juicy part, the resurrection and all that. We'll get to that next week. I just want to focus on the boring phrase, six days before Passover. So um, Passover, reminder, if you've uh, been to church before, Passover was, um, it was celebrated 2,000 years, about 2,000 years before this, when God freed his people from slavery uh, in Egypt. And, and if you've heard this story, you know, they put lamb's blood and hyssop on the doorposts of their house, and God passed over them, and he brought destruction to Egypt, who were um, enslaving God's people, and then he set the, the Israelites, he set his people free. And God said, look, I've done this for you. I want you to celebrate this now every year after this. Passover was one of the primary, is still one of the primary three feasts that the Jews celebrate. And God said, this was a big deal. I want you to make sure that you celebrate it. And John 12, 1 says that Jesus, what's about to happen, is six days before Passover. So six days before Passover. And then John 12, 12, it says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Um, accountants, engineers, I need you here. John 12, 1, six days before Passover. John 12, 12, the next day, how many days are we before Passover? It's not a trick question. Five, thank you. Not even an accountant or an engineer. Six minus one, no, no trick. We are now five days before Passover. So we're gonna go from John 12 to Exodus 12 really quick. Exodus 12, one, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month of, the, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And he goes on, God goes on the rest of Exodus 12, you can read it, and he explains how you're supposed to celebrate Passover. And he starts by saying, on the 10th day, find a lamb. And then he goes on to say, for the next few days, actually until the 14th day, I want you to analyze the lamb. I want you to look for blemishes in the lamb. I want you to make sure that that lamb is worthy of sacrifice to celebrate the freedom that I have brought you. Now, fun fact about the Jews, they count every part of a day. So how many days were they supposed to find their lamb before Passover? Well, they find it on the 10th, and then the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th. Five days before Passover is when the Jews were supposed to find the lamb that they were going to slaughter to celebrate and put its blood so that they could celebrate the freedom that God brought back then. Five days before Passover, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. The very same day, the whole town would have been looking for their lambs to sacrifice a few days later. Bible's pretty awesome, guys. It's a pretty good book. I don't have enough faith to not believe in this thing. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and during the next five days, every family was going to be analyzing the lamb that they had. Is this thing worthy of sacrifice? And for the next five days, if you read the rest of John, Jesus is in the temple more than any other week before, and he's being analyzed and critiqued and questioned to figure out, is he worthy? He is examined in the temple during the same period of time that the Passover lambs would have been analyzed in celebration for Passover. Guys, the Bible's amazing. And Jesus is the fulfillment of, he is the greater Passover lamb. We'll go on. John 12, 13, I can tell. Just a ton of energy about Old Testament references. There's more. 
They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Hosanna is a Hebrew word. It just means to save or salvation now. It's actually a pretty firm word. It's got a lot of oomph behind it. And it's actually what they're singing, and and this is not like some spontaneous moment from some worship leaders that are there. They're not singing a new song. They're actually singing a very old song. They're singing Psalm 118. Psalm 118 verse 25 says, Lord, save us, Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're not singing a new song. They're singing an old song and more about that psalm in a second. But in order to get to where I want to get, the next, and I know you thought this part was dicey, the next seven minutes are going to be pretty dicey, okay? We're going to get deep in like old Middle Eastern history, Old Testament prophecies. You know what's coming. Relevance is coming. And if you're new here, I want you to like hold on because you're going to be tempted to nudge your friend and say, this is really boring. I wish we would have gone to brunch or whatever else. Stick with me because at the end of this, there is a point. In your paper Bible, there is a page, Malachi, and then you flip that page over and it's Matthew. Malachi is the Old Testament, Matthew is the New Testament. That one single page, that one single piece of paper in your Bible represents about 400 years of history. And we, the Bible doesn't record what was going on in Israel, but we know from secular history some of what was happening. Namely, there was a rise of a superpower, a nation superpower of that time called the Greeks, specifically one man that rose to power in between that one page, in between the leaving off of the prophecies and the coming of Jesus. That man was named Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great did his best to turn the world Greek, and he did pretty well. Now, he died young, and um, there was a squabble for power over who was going to take over the Greek empire, who was going to end up running specifically this area of Israel, and there was a guy, Alexander the Great, not super kind, He was a teddy bear compared to this next guy who was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Antiochus Epiphanes IV takes over the Greek empire, specifically the area that was ruling over Israel, and this guy was awful. This guy hated the Jewish faith. He hated Israel. He he made it his life mission to get rid of all Yahweh worship in his time, and he did something that Jews still talk about today. There's been a number of really awful things that have happened to the Jewish people, I know we can name a couple of them. This is one of the worst. He took, this guy took a pig, which is an unclean animal, and he sacrificed it on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And he didn't sacrifice it to their God. He didn't sacrifice it to Yahweh. He sacrificed it to Zeus. And then he outlawed all other sacrifice in the nation of Israel. This man hated Jews. He hated God. And he was trying to turn the world to believe in whatever he believed in. This was an awful time to live in Israel. They were so oppressed by the Greeks. And finally, there was a ragtag family, band, warrior family, named the Maccabees. And they said, okay, enough is enough. We've got to do something about this. And so uh, the Maccabees, and maybe you've heard that name before, especially if you grew up in Catholic church or Catholic school, the Maccabees started going from town to town, taking back their nation. I mean, this is a crazy, I mean, this is just a family with some, you know, some people they pulled together. I mean, it, it was not a real well-thought-out army, at least not at the beginning. And they start pushing back the superpower of the time, the Greeks, until finally they got to Jerusalem. They got to the city. And 
The greatest underdog story is probably not any game in March Madness. It's this. As much as I love that Purdue got beat by a number 16 seed. But the Maccabees took back Jerusalem. They took back their city from the Greeks. And they took it back in such haste that they, as they were coming into Jerusalem and as they were settling there freshly in their city, they, it was time to celebrate another one of the big Jewish feasts. So not Passover, but another one. And again, we're almost there, but they had to celebrate another festival, which was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Other people call it, or it's also called Sukkot, uh, the Festival of Booths. And so they get into Jerusalem just as it's time to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, interesting part about the Feast of Tabernacles, it celebrated a number of things of how the Israelites lived in the desert, but there were two big ways that you celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. We're almost there. You'd celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles by the waving of palm branches and the singing of this ancient song called Hosanna. And so they moved into Jerusalem and they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles just like they would have any other year, but they had just freshly thrown off this awful dictator. Guess what is now tied to? Guess what motions, what song are now tied in their mind inextricably to throwing off an oppressive regime? The waving of palm branches and the singing of Hosanna. This took on a whole lot more than just a shallow worship move there. There was something else going on. As they celebrated the throwing off of the Greeks, they did what they did every year, except this time it carried a little bit more meaning. And just so you know, Psalm 118, when you look back at Psalm 118, it is a very military-minded psalm. It's talking about how hopefully the Messiah will come and overthrow those. And so that, that word, Hosanna, it had some deep connotation to it. Some scholars even think at the time of Jesus, it might have been illegal to sing that song. Because, not because the song was wrong, but because of what it evoked emotionally in people. As soon as you said that word, as soon as you sang that song, you're thinking about revolt. And the Pharisees and the Romans both knew we need to not get that song out because it does something to these people. There was more going on that first Palm Sunday than just shallow worship of Jesus. They saw their next Judah Maccabee. They saw their next Moses to release them from the oppressive regime. You got enough energy for one more? Luke 19. So in Luke's gospel account of Palm Sunday, he records this really famous thing where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, tell the crowds to be quiet. Tell them, you need to tell them to be quiet. And oftentimes we look at the Pharisees and we think, well, they're just, you know, no fun. But actually what they're doing here is they're trying to keep the peace, granted because it was profitable for them, but they're trying to keep the peace because they know if you keep singing that song, if you keep waving those branches, we all know what this means. That's going to catch Rome's attention. Jesus, do you want these people to start a revolt? Tell them to stop singing that song. And Luke records that famous line. That Jesus says, right? He says, if they keep silent, who will cry out? The rocks, the stones. And then, and this is interesting, because we often see that as some beautiful picture, and it might be, but then immediately after Jesus says it, if you look in Luke 19, he weeps. There was something about saying that phrase that caused Jesus to weep in that moment. 
Because what Jesus was possibly doing there is uh, called a remiz. He was quoting one part of a Hebrew um, poem or song or prophecy, but what he wanted you to do is bring your attention to the whole thing. So he's not making up, again, he's not making up some new phrase. He's actually quoting, and I know you guys all know this, but he's quoting Habakkuk 2, right? I know we all read Habakkuk 2 this week, likely. So what he's saying is Habakkuk 2.11, he says, The stones will cry out from the wall, and the roof will answer it from the wood. It is bad for him who builds a city with blood and builds a town with wrongdoing. If you read Habakkuk 2, God is condemning a city for their bloodthirst. And Jesus refers back to that passage. He says the stones will cry out. Jesus, I believe, is actually condemning those people for bloodthirst because they're not celebrating Jesus for the peaceful, forgiving Messiah. They're saying, do to Rome what Judah did to the Greeks. Do to Rome what Moses did to the Egyptians. They weren't looking exactly for the Messiah that Jesus knew he was. And I believe that's why he weeps because Jesus knew something on that day that the rest of the people hadn't figured out. That the Messiah that they wanted and the Messiah that he was going to be were two very, very different people. Crucify him. Crucify him. The crowd started hungry for the blood of Rome, but we know five days later whose blood did they settle for? Jesus. And so what are they really singing on that first Palm Sunday? They're not singing to the Jesus that Jesus actually was. They're singing to the Jesus that they were hoping he would be, a violent military man that would finally push back the Romans. Now, what's interesting is um, Passover in itself, even before the celebration, the song, the palm branches, Passover in itself was a time of revolt because if you think back to the original Passover, God threw off an oppressive regime, and so now this was a season. Every Passover that they were being oppressed by someone else was a season where it was almost like revolt was in the air. And so the threat of revolt always rose in the city of Jerusalem during Passover. And what's interesting is when the threat rises, we know that the presence of the law rises. I'm, I'm binging right now a, way too quickly, a Netflix show all about the Secret Service. And, and I'm watching them, and what's interesting... It's called night action. I know you're all wondering. Maximum explosions, minimum romance. It's amazing. And uh, what's interesting is, you know, no matter where a, a dignitary goes, be it the president, the vice president, what we're following around right now is the vice president's daughter, um, is no matter where she goes, the threat of violence increases simply by who she is. And so the Secret Service simply go wherever those people go because that's where the threat increases. This is not some new American strategy that we came up with. Caesar was doing this 2,000 years ago. Every time the city of Jerusalem would swell on Passover with other Jews coming in for the celebration, it would also swell with Roman soldiers. Caesar was smart. He knew that if they're going to revolt against me, it's going to be this season. It's going to be this week. And so he would send in extra soldiers every Passover, and then he wouldn't go himself but he would send in his number two of the area, a man named Pontius Pilate. That's why he was there. He didn't live there. He lived in Caesarea. And every Passover, a few days before, Pontius Pilate would come riding in from the west, from Caesarea. Unlikely the same day that Jesus came riding in from the east in Bethany. 
That first Palm Sunday was not just a shallow worship service. It was a tale of two processionals. From the west, you have the Roman war horse, spears and swords and soldiers. And from the east, you have a carpenter turned rabbi with peasants and riding on a donkey. It wasn't the first time, and it certainly hasn't been the last, that a city was forced to choose between two kingdoms that were converging in it. Two kingdoms that were coming with very different ideas of how to rule and how to reign. And the city of Jerusalem was caught in the middle, and we see how they responded with just a few days. The first Palm Sunday was a tale of two processionals, and and I'm going to stop right there, and I want to reflect on the thing we're all thinking It's a comment, it's a question. How awful, how finicky were the Jews? I mean, seriously, like, they're, they're shouting Hosanna one day and crucify him the next, all because they didn't get their way, all because Jesus wasn't who they wanted. How often do we do the same? How often do we try to form Jesus into our preferences How often do we try to form him and mold him into our image? This is going to be on the slide, and this is the big idea this morning. Does Jesus have permission to disagree with you? Does Jesus have permission to disagree with you? See, they laid down their palm branches when it seemed like their desires were aligning, but when they realized they didn't, they raised their voices. Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus never asked anybody to lay down palm branches. That was just a shallow expression of what he really wanted, which was for them to lay down their lives. And guys, palm branch religion isn't going to cut it. Palm branch religion isn't going to cut it, especially today. Palm branch religion, it gets loud when Jesus agrees with your political view or when he vindicates you in front of your enemies. Palm branch religion maximizes others' sin and it minimizes yours. Palm branch religion thrives in times of blessing, but it cowers when things get hard. Palm branch religion doesn't give space for repentance because you're not as bad as the other person next to you. Palm branch religion thrives in a climate of you do you, but it withers when the king walks into the room and says, I want that. Palm branch religion isn't going to cut it. Now, palm branch moments, they're good. When temporarily at moments when my desire, my heart aligns with God's, those are in unbelievable moments. They're exciting. I want to have them more and more often. It means I'm aligning more and more with God. But do not let those moments fool you for genuine faith. Your faith is not most impressive when you can wave a palm branch, but when you can submit your preference to another. Your faith is not most impressive when you can wave a palm branch, but when you can give up your relationships, your habits, your politics, your thought patterns, your rhythms for the sake of another. Palm branch religion looks good on the surface, but it is not authentic faith. The goal of this is not to bring shame. But it is to be a little bit more reflective. We're going we're gonna to get a little serious today so that we can celebrate next week. The big idea this morning is where does your life and Jesus's not agree? Where does your life and Jesus's disagree? And I'm going to give you some ideas or spark some ideas. Jesus, just so you know, Jesus never did any shady business practice. Jesus tithed. 
Jesus was generous with his time. Jesus never abused power or influence. Jesus always led from a place of humility. Jesus never judged someone. Jesus never gossiped. Jesus was a loyal friend. Jesus was never distracted. He was always present anywhere that he was. Jesus mourned with those who mourned, and he celebrated with those that were joyful. Jesus never lusted. Jesus never had an inappropriate relationship. Jesus never looked at pornography, nor had a non-marital affair. Jesus, and he wasn't married also. Jesus, this is crazy, Jesus never had an idol. Jesus never put anything above his relationship with the Father. Where are you not like Jesus? Where does your life and Jesus's diverge? Where does your kingdom, the kingdom that you want and the kingdom that he brings, look differently? Choosing Jesus' preferences over yours is the act of repentance. And if your heart is a room and God walked into it, Jesus himself walked into it, all the secrets and, and the things you didn't think anybody knew, all of them were laid bare, what would Jesus point at? Where would he say, I want that? I'm going to need that. I don't think that can go with you where you want to go. Hosanna was the right song, but it had the wrong motive. It was shallow in content. God, save us. God, bring your salvation. This morning in the back of your pew is a palm branch of sorts. It's a sage green note card. And um, what we're going to do this morning is, is we want to take a moment to be a little bit more reflective as we lead into the week where we're going to be unbelievably celebratory for the resurrection. I want you to answer that question that I've been asking on the back of your note card. Where does your life and Jesus's disagree? If Jesus walked into the room of your heart, what would he point at? What relationship, what habit, what thought pattern? Where does your life and Jesus's not agree? We're going to write it down, take some time, take the first song. But here's what I'm going to ask, is that you would write it down and then fold it up a couple times. And if you're comfortable, I'd love for you to just come and lay it at the front. We're going to lay it down a different kind of palm branch this morning. Don't lay it down if you're not absolutely certain you're ready to give it up. Don't lay it down if there's still a little part of you that thinks it could be good to hold on to. Only lay it down when you're really ready. Where does your life and Jesus's disagree? Does Jesus have permission to point at something in your heart and say, I want that? We are not going to open these and read them. We're going to throw them in the trash after today because that's where they belong. Um, So you can be as vulnerable as you want. But as we respond and as we worship and have a moment to reflect, um, the front will be open if you just want to stay. But let's get our hearts right. Let's have a change of mind so that God can change our hearts. Because I want to celebrate in this room next week with a pure heart. And there's some stuff that needs to go on my note card. I'm guessing there's some stuff that needs to go on yours. And so we're going to invite the Spirit. We're going to worship Him together. As we lay things down in an authentic way. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We ask for your conviction and we silence shame in Jesus' name. Shame, you are not welcome here, but conviction, you are. Lord, where do you and I disagree? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to change my mind? God, would you bring it to each of our attentions right now? Pray this in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Sunday service. If we can serve you in any way, please visit our website at citychurchotr.com. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in Cincinnati, you can support us financially. Giving can also be done on our website at citychurchotr.com give.